there is a sort of hypervigilance that very, very anxious children may have having grown up in difficult situations that make you a good journalist. Also makes you a great air traffic controller, but it doesn't help you sleep at night and have a more fulfilling life. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. This week, we get a great little conversation with Anna Mortimer, a therapist and a former journalist who co-founded The Minefield, which is a platform that connects international development workers, journalists, and similar professionals with caring and intelligent therapists. I had a really fun time talking to Anna, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. I will say that the audio quality isn't our best. So I apologize for that up front, but I think there's a lot of good information in it about uh, therapy that's out there for journalists. So enjoy the podcast. To get started, tell me a little bit about your background as a journalist and I guess also as the daughter of a, a journalist as well. Yeah, I suppose I better start with being the daughter of one first since that happened first. But my father was a really old school war correspondent, you know, beaten up leather jacket, all drinking, all smoking, all shagging, you know, very old fashioned for nowadays. And I grew up, well, I didn't actually grow up with him, but he was a huge part of my life. I spent one summer at the American Colony Hotel when I was about 12 with all the old hacks in the bar every night. Very weird world. He was killed at the end of the war in El Salvador when I was 19. I suppose I'd been half expecting it all my life, and yet it was shocking anyway. And so I definitely started to unravel. I was studying Russian at Oxford at the time. And then I spent a lot of time in Russia, fell into journalism, making coffee at the ABC News Bureau in Moscow whilst also singing in a band and stuff. And I guess I was about 24 and working at the London Times, writing a kind of Bridget Jones style column about guys I was dating, when I realized that my anxiety and insomnia and alcoholism were pretty out of control. And I went into psychoanalysis five times a week on the couch, very nice gentleman in uh, Wilsdon in uh, West London who's now a very famous kind of eminent psychoanalyst. And I then went off to Moscow for the Times and in my 30s retrained as a psychotherapist. And here I am. And here you are. So what is it about your experience? I mean, how did your background as a journalist help you sort of with the, the type of therapy that you're doing now? Or does it? I think it does and doesn't. I think being older helps I think having been through huge life experiences like you know losing someone to violent death but also growing up in a very complicated world and having to sort through that I think probably allows you to understand people better or maybe growing up very anxious made me very vigilant to how other people are thinking and feeling so I'm good at being able to tell I'm not sure I think journalism, I think it's probably secondary journalism. I think you probably have a kind of, I probably have a high anxiety that makes me very aware of how other people are thinking and feeling. That makes you a good journalist, but it also makes you a good psychotherapist. So how did uh, Mindfield come about? Mindfield came about when my friend Liz came to lunch at my house here on a mountain in Tuscany. And I was talking about my small therapy practice with a few patients who 
or live in Azerbaijan, actually, where there is no English speaking psychotherapy or counselling or anything of that kind. And Liz said, oh, my God, if I'd known that you could have video therapy when I was working in development and was out in the field, I would definitely have had it. We should start a business. So we did. Okay, so, you know, this is a podcast about and for journalists and, you know, your patients tend to be people who are international development workers, journalists in similar professions that are, you know, in positions where they're, they're facing sort of these traumatic experiences. So what type of help do you provide for your, your patients? We provide uh, video therapy, which sounds very simple, but is very, very complicated in the end, I think. I think the reason that video therapy uh, can be a good thing, I think, it, by the way, I should say, I do think it's second best. I think if you do live in one place and you can go and see a therapist who lives somewhere near you, the face-to-face -face experience is important. But if you can't, and so many of us can't, video therapy offers you therapy in your hotel room, in your tent, wherever there's Wi-Fi, really. I see people who go out of refugee camps and speak to me on their phone, standing near somewhere where there's a Wi-Fi connection. It's so adaptable. And I think that journalists tend not to get help. It's a very macho profession. Although people have moved on a bit from my dad's generation, I cannot imagine any of them dreaming of getting help. Although it's moved on a bit from that, there is still a lot of the usual kind of escapism into alcoholism and promiscuity and drug use relationships tend to be unsustainable coming home is a big downer because there's a sort of performance high that people get people talk about being adrenaline junkies i'm not even sure if i don't like the phrase very much but it's very hard to go back to ordinary life yeah it seems like and not even just for the people who were you know war correspondents or who were going to war zones or you know covering um you know international crises that those types of journalists, other journalists as well, I think, just our profession sort of seems to have this drive, this sort of anxiety-creating atmosphere about it. You know, the being deadline-driven, this idea that, you know, you need to tough things out. You need to sort of put your personal life secondary. What do you think about that in general about our, our industry? I think that's absolutely right. And I don't want to make it sound as though we only offer therapy to the most kind of intrepid people throwing themselves in front of bullets. That would be absurd. Of course, anyone who would prefer to have video therapy from the privacy of their own home or hotel might use us. You don't have to be in some extreme situation to feel unwell. Of course you don't. In terms of journalism creating anxiety, I would again say it's probably the other way around. I think if you're going into one of these professions that consumes your whole life, that is very anxiety and deadline driven, where you're only as good as the last word you wrote, there's a hell of a lot of kind of performance anxiety. I think you're already in trouble. So I think people who sort of go off into the field are already on the run from unwanted feelings back home or within themselves, actually. So I think you're in trouble before you get to the profession. But again, a bit like I was saying earlier, there is a sort of hypervigilance that very, very anxious children may have having grown up in difficult situations that make you a good journalist, also makes you a great air traffic controller. But it doesn't help you sleep at night and have a broader, more, more fulfilling life. 
Right. And my my own life, uh, my own experience as a journal, a working journalist, being in newsrooms, you know, I've I've had to deal with anxiety issues. I've sought therapy for that. I even remember the very first therapy session I went to where the therapist said, yeah, you know, you can actually be happy. You can actually, you know, sort of change your life and change your work on changing your perspective to be a happy person. And I didn't believe him because because <laughs> that was kind of the way I was raised. It's like, no, 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 you're constantly struggling. That's that's what you should be doing. But I, f- I find it fascinating that, that you say that, you know, I think our personality types are, are kind of what like attracts us to this type of work. But at the same time, it's it's the thing that kind of sort of traps us, I guess. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's very interesting what you were saying about feeling that you couldn't be happy because you were brought up to feel that struggling was good. And I quite often find myself saying to people something that probably sounds a bit banal said like this, but that people do tend to have an internal wall chart where they give themselves gold stars for one kind of behavior and kind of big red crosses for another kind of behavior. And it's quite interesting to find out what that would be. So some people give themselves a big red cross for being honest, for being tearful when they're sad, for laughing when they're happy, for letting anybody know what they're thinking. They think, no, that was bad. And they're very proud of themselves, gold star, if nobody noticed they were upset. And it sounds as if you're giving yourself a gold star for really struggling. I must be doing something good because this is a nightmare, gold star. But lying on a beach, you know, with a with a banana daiquiri, big red cross because you shouldn't be having a good time you shouldn't be relaxed and I think there was something else you were saying that made me want to oh yes you said that your um your first therapist said you can be happy I would like to slightly take issue with that I'm not, I'm oh, okay. not, I'm, not I'm not sure that the pursuit of happiness is what we're doing I mean I understand if you know one could use other sure. words maybe peace of mind, maybe serenity or or something like that. But I think the pursuit of happiness is difficult because then when you're not happy, you've kind of failed. It's a bit like I'm very anti-positive thinking because, of course, if you're depressed, you can't think positively. You know, you can't just put post-its around your mirror saying you're beautiful, have a great day, and then you're going to feel beautiful and have a great day. It's, It's absurdly simplistic. So I think, and I think people get very trapped in it and then feel they've failed. So what we're doing in therapy is trying to think deeply about really the way you think, the way your mind works and how you've got where you are and to get rid of any confusion and any propaganda. People tend to have a lot of propaganda about themselves. So I'm the kind of person who acts. (laughs) is your propaganda when really you're probably the kind of person who why otherwise you wouldn't have to put the propaganda out yeah i I hear that this idea of you know just to sort of backtrack a little bit on the happiness aspect of it i i you know I, i i see situations where this sort of pursuit the pursuit of happiness, but but more in a in a work situation, the pursuit of sort of perfection, uh, of constantly getting better, and then having difficulty sort of dealing with those short shortfalls. Um, you know, the, for me, that's that's anxiety creating um, the sort of the pressures of, of this type of work. I mean, somebody who is who's anxious about deadlines is, shouldn't be choosing a, a career in journalism, and yet well, no, <laughs> no, no, they should. They have to. I think it's perfect for them because otherwise they would put it somewhere else. I think deadline anxiety, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too psychoanalytic, but I, <laughs> I think 
I think um, deadline anxiety is to do with having to perform to be loved. So simplistically put, if you're brought up with the kind of parents who are pleased when you get a good mark at school, but only really give you attention then, you know, otherwise aren't terribly interested in you, then you want to get a lot of good marks, don't you? And if you're, if you're very, if you always had to put on a bit of a performance to get back some love or some affection or whatever you want to call it, a good reaction, then a profession where you have to do that every day is ideal for you. Obviously, however, when you fail, you feel as if you're never going to be loved again and you fall into a terrible pit of despair. That's the downside. Mm-hmm. But you're, if you weren't a journalist or you didn't go into a deadline-led, anxiety-inducing profession, you'd be doing it in relationships. And let's face it, you're probably doing it in your relationships anyway, even if you're a journalist. My experience in talking to other journalists who have either gone into therapy or have been sort of experiencing anxiety about all types of things in the newsroom is, you know, they they may not recognize, you know, this is a point where maybe they should go talk to somebody or try to seek, seek some sort of help to sort of guide them. Is there any general advice you would give to somebody to sort of you know, this is a sort of a sign that you need to think about therapy or, or think about getting some help? Short answer to that would be no, but a a much longer answer would be that I think it's different for everybody. You know, there are a lot of people who have to hit rock bottom, as they say. I don't think I've ever said that before in my life, but I'm saying it now. Before they would think about getting help, there are other people who might spend a week of feeling very anxious and sleeping badly, and they might go and get help straight away. For the people who need help the most, it's a very difficult thing to do. And you have to be very brave, really. And that can take a long time. I carried the phone number of my psychoanalyst around with me in my pocket for, I think, three or four years before I called him. Many people do that. Taking the first call really does take a lot of courage. It's a big decision to get into a relationship with a therapist. Only you know when it's right for you, really, because we all know tons of people who need therapy. We could all say, oh, yeah this is a great idea, video therapy, brilliant. And there's so many people who need it. But what about you? What about me? When can we say I really? I just think it's different for everybody. So what do you say to somebody who may be struggling in the newsroom with whatever particular issue? You know, how do they, should they, should they talk to a colleague? Should they talk to a family member, a friend or whatever? What type of strategies would you think that they, they should use? Yeah, I know. I, I understand what you're what you're asking, and I and I and I think, of course, talking to anyone's a good idea if you're struggling. However, family members and colleagues are going to give you advice. What a therapy is not is advice. It's being heard, and many people who go into therapy have never really been listened to before. I would say that the common denominator is loneliness. Almost everybody who wants some therapy feels very lonely because there's a hell of a lot of stuff that hasn't been said. Why hasn't it been said? Maybe because they feel it's boring. Maybe they feel it's too much pressure for somebody. Maybe they feel it would be unbearable. Maybe it's embarrassing, shameful, all these things. But I think that having a lot of unsaid stuff makes you feel lonely. And so people who come into therapy feel lonely. And talking to friends and colleagues might not help with that. What I would always say is that one session is better than no sessions. Two sessions is better than one session. So if you do call us, but you don't want to have kind of very long term therapy, you just want to talk to someone for 50 minutes. Brilliant. Do that. You know, 
it doesn't have to be a great big deal. You don't have to be lying on the couch like I did five times a week for years. And the other thing is, is, you know, I know that if you're in a job, if you're in a, in a newsroom, sometimes you, if you're looking for help and, you, and you're looking for advice, you know, you may turn to a colleague, you may turn to your boss, and they may not even be the most strategic thing to do and may actually create problems for you. You know, if you go talk to your boss, on the one hand, it, it might be good because it gives them a better assessment of any problems you might have. I mean, I think it's important to have that level of communication with your, your superiors. On the other hand, it also gives them a sort of a picture of what you might not be able to do. And they might be repercussions from that end, which also is another, to go deeper into it is another reason why people may hesitate from talking to other people. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And of course, there is still, you know, whatever anybody would like to try to claim, there is still a hell of a lot of stigma around mental health. Talking to your boss, of course, might mean they start thinking, hmm, Michael seems a bit fragile. Maybe I won't send him to Columbia on a great assignment. So, you know, of course, there's all that. And that's why video therapy can be useful, because it's it's so confidential. The other thing I was going to say is that I always think it's, you know, when you meet someone on a plane and you end up telling them everything because, you know, you're never going to see them again. And there's a lot of freedom in that. And our therapists are based all over the place in Europe. It's so unlikely you're going to meet one of us in the street ever. So, And I think that can be quite useful because it gives you the freedom and the space, really, to maybe speak honestly and think in a different way to the way you think in daily life with sort of giving people advice and wondering what they should do, wondering what you should do, what will be for the best. It's a different way of thinking, really. It's all about the relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was raised Catholic and, and you could even point to, you know, the confessional as being that sort of thing. You know, here's somebody that, yeah, you know, is a priest, but you're, you're speaking to them through a barrier, you know, with some degree of anonymity, or at least you feel that way, that you're able to sort of unburden yourself and sort of deal with the guilt. But of course, in the end, the guilt really kind of never goes away. But it, it, it helps in some ways. Yeah. And of course, you know, that psychoanalysis comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So I'm sure there is it's steeped in all that kind of business. What I would say about the confessional is that the priest doesn't offer interpretations. So it can be very cathartic and it can be unburdening, but it's unlikely to be transformative on its own because it doesn't move on. You know, you don't get this kind of tectonic change that you get with certainly psychoanalytic psychotherapy, where things really move. It's not just kind of chucking your stuff out. It's really thinking about yourself and having a proper look and interpreting. And I mean, in the shorthand, it's making the unconscious conscious or at least trying to. You know, is there anything that newsrooms can do to sort of set up, I don't know, systems or, or ways to encourage people to seek help when they need it or be supportive, more supportive of, of people who are seeking help? Well, I think that a lot of businesses are getting on board with the idea of psychosocial support and feeling that they should offer something. And maybe a lot of people do. I know that there are some places that do have in-house counsellors and all that kind of thing, which might be useful. But I honestly think that people want their therapy to really be private. Of course, the workplace can have little talk groups and it's always good to make sure that everybody's on the same side and there needs to be space to know how people are feeling and thinking. But in terms of actual therapy, I think people want to talk and think privately with somebody outside the workspace. So 
you know, what I would hope that people might do is make sure that their their employees know that our service is available and there are other services as well, of course, you know, but to maybe if I were running a newspaper, I'd have a kind of, you know, notice board in real life and online where, look, if you're struggling, here's some organisations. I think that's about the most you can do, really, because when somebody comes to me for therapy and says, oh, I'm here because my wife told me I need a therapy, I just kind of groan, you know. I mean, you can't do it for somebody else. It has to be something that you have decided to go in and do. The other thing, I, you know, I wanted to ask you about, you know, this is something that we discussed on the podcast before, that one of the new sort of things that has happened in in digital media is that there are editors out there who are exposed to a lot of negative imagery, uh, violent imagery on a, on a regular basis, which may not, I mean, obviously I think we can all sympathize and understand if, if a war correspondent is out there, war photographer is out there and is shooting these photos and experiencing, you can go to that person and say, yeah, I understand maybe why, you know, he or she has PTSD, but you know, maybe they're shooting those photos back to, to a newsroom where an editor has to go through them and, you know, daily has to be exposed to these things. And then they themselves are beginning to feel sort of the weight of the trauma of visualizing this. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, of course. Um, I remember my first experience of that, actually. It was working um, at ABC News in Moscow, and some footage came back. I can't remember where it was from, actually, but I think it was probably Chechnya, but anyway, there was some footage. It was unbelievably horrific, and it was the first time I realized how sanitized television news is. The worst thing you see on television news is the kind of most benign thing that comes back in the footage. Um, and it is, it, it, people are looking at this all day, every day. I think, sadly, you get used to it to quite a high degree, quite quickly, actually, and feel rather removed from it. My suspicion always is that when people are terribly traumatised, I mean, unless they're in a huge kind of, you know, unless there's, there's a particularly awful experience. But I think that people are already traumatised if they're going to be traumatised, you know, re-traumatised by something. So if you're feeling fragile and you're feeling sort of, well, yeah, fragile. If you're feeling fragile and then you're looking at horrific imagery, of course it's going to affect you very badly. I think you're feeling fragile first, though. I think if you are solid and whole and feeling well, the imagery, of course, will be terrible and upsetting. But I think that to be traumatised, you're probably already traumatised. Less true in the field when you're kind of watching somebody actually be murdered. Of course, that's, you know, that's going to affect you very deeply. Although the worse off you are health wise to start with, the worse it's going to affect you. You know, this has been a really kind of interesting conversation because we we sort of talk about, you know, the sort of the challenges that journalists face, this idea that, you know, we have a very difficult job and we bring a certain sort of certain personality traits and history and emotional history to our, our work. And maybe one of the reasons we're attracted to it is because it sort of feeds that or helps us to function better or we, we pursue that, I guess, in some way. I think that most people try to make the outside world match their inner world as far as possible. And this can get very confusing. As a crass example, if you have a war zone, a war going on in your head, 
So, for example, you had warring parents or something, you might feel more comfortable in a war zone because you can say, oh, yeah, life really is like that. I'm not mad. It makes you feel less mad. So if you feel terribly paranoid and then you can see someone walking behind you, you feel a bit less mad. No, that person's following you. It's an affirmation. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to make the outside world uh, match our inner world. If we can sort out the war that's going on in our heads, we might not have to do the very addictive thing of constantly seeking out a real war. Because the trouble is with these sort of addictive behaviors that are ultimately unsatisfying. You don't get a war correspondent coming home saying, yeah, I'm done now. I just got a bit bored of it. You know, they're always off to the next one. It's just impossible to stop because it's a kind of addiction and it never quite gives you the satisfaction you need that you can carry back to your quote unquote normal life. So I think it's it's important to sort through all the stuff so that you don't have to act it out. You know, there's a very important differentiation between being well and being psychotic, for example. So a well person would say the eyes in that portrait look as if they're following me. And the psychotic person would say those eyes are following me. And so if you can't think it out, you end up having to act it out. And that's what therapy is about, really thinking it out. So you don't have to act out with lovers or alcohol anymore. That doesn't mean you can't drink or have sex, obviously. I should make that right. <laughs> You can do both. <laughs> right. You know, wondering why do I why do I need to go to a war zone to be happy? And why do I feel unhappy with my relationships when I'm not there? And why am I constantly thinking about I have to go back? It's not so much what is it about the war. It's no, it's what's about inside me that, that requires me to do that or that I need to do that. And it doesn't mean that you can't go to the war and report on it very effectively. And it doesn't mean that you can't be a promiscuous alcoholic if you want to be. It's just that you'll know why you're doing it. It will lack right. that addictive quality. Right. Do you feel that, I mean, I know that conversations I've had with, with journalists, conversations I've had just with people, people are under a lot of pressure these days. I, I, I don't know if it's, you know, I've always tried to take sort of a long view of this, this idea that things have always been kind of bad, but I've spoken to many people who are anxious about, you know, the world situation, the the politics that's going on in the United States, but also, you know, in, in other places around the world is creating a sort of a level of anxiety. You know, one would hope if people are feeling that, that they would would seek out some sort of help and, and try to deal with that. I mean, it's really interesting how you pitch that because you're you're projecting outwards, you know. So if you're going to project your anxiety and say, well, everybody is anxious because of the situation in America or the situation of Britain, or if you're going to say that, then you look so much less likely to seek help, aren't you? If you can say, I'm feeling really anxious. And someone says, well, look, you know, you should talk to someone about that. You know, maybe you could talk to someone. Then you might get somewhere. But I think if you're going to kind of blanket say everybody's anxious, then right. you, you never you... get the help. Oh, okay. Yeah, this podcast has turned into a lot more of a therapy session about me than, I, than I'd expected. But maybe that's the uh, that's the trap I'm in. I guess you're going to have to charge me for this or something. I don't know. But I think the, the service that Minefield offers is – is important. You know, the ability for people to be able to access it, you know, online, you know, do a Skype call like what we're doing to get some therapy, I think is a, is a great thing and a resource. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was just so, yeah, we could talk sort of about trauma and journalism, but also to talk about, look, you know, to say that, yeah, I can't, I can't make it to an appointment or I can't, you know, yeah, I don't have time for that. 
I mean, you have time in your, your time in your day probably to do a Skype call with somebody to bounce some ideas and to get some some help. I think that's that's kind of the value of what you what you're doing. I think so, and I think it's also important to say that all our therapists are former international aid workers or journalists themselves. And whilst that shouldn't matter, actually, I mean, my training training is very uh, Freudian Kleinian, and it, it really shouldn't matter that your therapists share your background. And of course, in terms of the actual work you do together, it may not. But it might, and I hope does, make people feel a bit more comfortable about court. Because you're not calling someone who's going to be sitting there with a stethoscope around their neck asking you intrusive questions. When you're calling one of our therapists and talking to them, you know you're speaking to somebody who will understand the work you do and understand where you come from and understand what it's like being somewhere where you feel you might be in mortal danger if you are. Having said that, we also see people who live down the road but don't like going out for their therapy in case someone sees them. We also see people who are very high profile in their own country and so feel that they can't go out for therapy. So there are lots of reasons why you might want to see someone online in the middle of the night, you know, or whenever is convenient for you. We also try to be flexible, unlike therapists you see face to face, because we understand the schedule. So if you need to move your session, we'll move the session. You're not going to get charged if you give us a bit of notice that you're not coming. It's a it, it's a much more, I hope, relaxed way of doing it. Anna, this has been this has been fascinating. I got something out of this. I hope you did too. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.